Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Well, welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, and we get to discuss fascinating question today. What does it look like to be human in an age of increasing artificial intelligence and smart machines and everything else that's happening in our culture today? And we're really excited to be joined by my uh, good friend, Jay Richards. Dr. Richards is a professor in the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America. He's a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, the executive editor of The Stream, and a host of The Force for Good. He's the author of many books. We've interviewed him on this podcast before, like Infiltrated and Indivisible, as well as one of my personal favorites, Money, Greed, and God. And Jay earned his PhD with honors in philosophy and theology from Princeton Theological Seminary. He's also taught our students here at our Impact 360 Fellows. And so just always fun to have his voice on all these conversations that really matter. So Jay, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you, Jonathan. Well, good. Well, you've written a brand new book called mm-hmm. The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in an Age of Smart Machines. So just share a little bit, just kind of at a high level, why it is that you felt important to write this book now. Well, honestly, it started out as the sequel to that book you just mentioned, Money, Greed, and God, where I felt like at the end of Money, Greed, and God, I had made sort of a case for free enterprise and debunked a lot of the myths that Christians bring to economic discussions. But I didn't feel like I had done enough to make a positive case for human creativity that, you know, we're creatures made in the image of the creative God. And I think that's the most important economic fact. I mean, it's obviously a theological fact. It's a really important economic fact. So it started with that. But, you know, when you write, especially kind of popular level books, you need to speak to a current issue. It's There's the book you want to write, and there's the book that the publisher wants to publish. And I realized that actually this fear about automation and artificial intelligence was really growing strong. I mean, while I was working on the book, there were multiple stories about this every day. There have been major studies by the McKinsey Group and scholars at Oxford University that say, you know, in the next 20 or 30 years, maybe half of all jobs will get displaced either by robots or by some other kind of smart machines. And I realized that these two topics actually relate because I was convinced that a lot of the debates over so-called artificial intelligence are rooted really in a worldview debate. And it's this debate about whether we are machines or not. Are we really just machines made of meat as one materialist scientists said, or are human beings persons that are distinct from any kind of machine that we could make? It turns out that that dispute, which is really a kind of a philosophical and theological dispute, governs in many ways where you end up when you're thinking about artificial intelligence and robotics. So the key question is whether we can actually make machines that literally replace us so that there's they, they do everything that we can do as human beings and eventually do it better. Or is that not actually true? We build all sorts of amazing machines to do some things better than we can do. A tractor can lift more than we can lift. But we never imagine that if we make a strong enough tractor, it's going to literally replace us. And so I think that's honestly, that's why I decided I want to combine these. I want to combine a defense of human uniqueness and human exceptionalism and a defense of human creativity with this worry about the economy. And so it required me to dig fairly deeply into the details of technology and the whole artificial intelligence debate. Yeah, and it's fascinating and so important and timely. And so let's let's dive into a couple different particular 
um, aspects of the conversation. You start off your book and you talk a little bit about how we got here. Maybe say a word about that in terms of just kind of how culture has developed, even from agrarian to present. Just kind of that little snapshot of kind of framing where we're at about to be disrupted by AI and machines and things like that. Well, it, I realize that it's almost it is impossible to say, OK, this is what everybody's going to be doing 50 years from now. We don't actually have an answer to that question any more than somebody in 1776 looking around at you know the American colonies, 95% of the population was working on farms, and they might have panicked if they had looked at a primitive steam engine and thought, well, gosh, people will become so productive that most people won't need to work on farms. That means, what, maybe 94% of the population will be out of work and won't have anything to do. Well, that would have followed based upon what any particular person thought at that time. Of course, we know in the present, that's not what happened at all. There was major disruption when we moved from agrarian to an industrial economy and people move from the country to the city, that disruption is a real thing. It's a real cost, but it also freed us up to do lots of other things so that now less than 2% of the population lives and works on farms. And yet people do a heck of a lot of things that no one would have ever imagined doing before. And so I realized in some ways we can't predict exactly what we're going to do in the future, but we do have the case studies, if you will, of what has actually happened historically. And historically, major ways of working, major types of industry have been completely displaced. And so if you think about the farmers again in 1776, most people that were working farming, they didn't even have live alternatives. They Most of them didn't actually they didn't have skills that would have translated in any other way. And so if people were able to manage that transition, I would argue there's no reason to think that we're not going to be able to manage the transition now to a much more high tech and uh, an economy that has what we can, you know, sort of metaphorically call an economy with intelligent machines. The difference is that the disruption in the current age or the age that's about to come is going to happen much more quickly than it did in that these previous disruptions. Rather, you know, the transition from farm to city took place in the United States over about a century and a half. Whereas the disruption that we're talking about now is going to take place probably over the next two decades. So that's so there's both a similarity what's happened before. So that's the sort of don't panic part of my message. But the speed at which it's going to take place is dramatic. And so that's the prepare part of my message. Yeah, and I think that's really important and really important to us and the work we do here at Impact 360, right? Because we're, we're trying to equip teenagers and young adults to think well about their faith, to have influence uh, for Christ in this culture that we live in. And so we have to understand a lot of these things. We have to help them navigate and honestly be ready for a world that, that wasn't our world. We kind of have to prepare them with principles. That's why I'm really glad that you've written this book. But I want to define a few terms. Mm-hmm. So AI, of course, stands for artificial intelligence. But you kind of talk about, you know, what's the difference between weak AI versus strong AI? And kind of why is that an important distinction? That's the key distinction, and it gets muddled. Weak AI is just what we experience every time we do a Google search. You go in and you type a question in. Almost never do you type in a question that nobody's ever asked before. And very quickly, Google is amazing at anticipating both the answers and even sometimes the question when you just typed in a few words. But what's happening is that Google has developed an algorithm that sifts all of the intelligent questions and answers that people give it. So if I type in a question about, you know, where is Impact 360 located? And then I look at the list and it gives me what I think is probably the answer. I click on that and I've taught Google a piece of information. And so it's going to increase the likelihood that people will see that 
particular length the next time that question is asked. So the weak artificial intelligence we experience are basically think of them as amazing computer programs connected to networks that allow the machines to sift all this intelligent activity and decision-making by real intelligent agents, by real persons. Strong artificial intelligence is essentially the idea that at some point these machines we make will become conscious agents just as we are. They won't be artificial intelligence. They'll literally be intelligences. And this is every sci-fi movie you've ever seen about computers and robots assumes this because it would be boring otherwise you know, to have a movie about, say, the ship computer on Star Trek, which is very boring. I mean, it's basically <laughs> a glorified series, so there's no movies about that. What you want is a question about, well, when do they become conscious? That's great for science fiction, but we watch so much of that that we imagine if we make a computer that's fast enough and can do enough stuff, suddenly it's going to become a conscious free agent like we are. And that's the that's the intellectual mistake that's so often made. And that's why you want to keep straight, okay, the type of artificial intelligence we experience and can make, like Google, from this strong AI, which I think is just a science fiction fantasy. Right. That's that's really helpful. And then we've already talked about a couple of the assumptions, but I want to kind of unpack those. What are the, the two main worldview assumptions? Maybe define that real quickly in terms of materialism and naturalism. What is that? And what are assumptions those are bringing as well as kind of Christianity and a Christian worldview and how those are contrasted when we approach this question? Well, by materialism in this case, I just mean the view that matter is all that matters. So in other words, everything is ultimately reducible to atoms colliding with atoms and blind physical forces that you might call laws. And so if you assume that's true about everything, then you're going to assume it's also true about human beings. And so we're ultimately just at best physics and chemistry. And so everything that we do can be explained in those terms. But if that's true, there can't be room for reason, really, because reason involves connecting logical propositions to others, saying, okay, this argument follows from that argument. Those are logical relations. Those aren't physical objects. And so reason is out the window. Freedom is out the window, because if you're entirely determined by chemical reactions, then you can't have an exercise of freedom where you as a person is actually choosing to do certain things. None of that makes any sense. And so that's materialism applied to the human person. If, on the other hand, you're a Christian that believes God was free to create the universe as he saw fit, and he's not only supremely free, but he created beings in his image who are, yes, we're physical, we have bodies, but we're also free agents that God has created us with this capacity to exercise this virtue that I call creative freedom. And so you can see how if you bring one of the other of those assumptions to this debate, you're likely to come out in a different place. If we're just basically machines, just chemistry, um, you're going to expect that anything that we could make something that, you know, is also going to be a machine. And if we're just machines, there's no reason to assume a machine won't replace us. If you think, no, we're not just machines, then you have a reason to doubt it. But of course, in the book, I, the book is published by a secular publisher. And so I thought, how do I make these arguments? And the way I make the argument ultimately is really based on common sense. Even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe in God, you nevertheless take for granted that materialism is false. No one actually, when they're normally in their working day, imagines that they're entirely determined by physics. We all take for granted that we exercise freedom. We get mad when somebody does us an injustice. That presupposes something like the existence of the person. So my argument is that, look, if you just, just start with what you know directly, you know that you're a person, you know that you can sometimes exercise freedom over your surroundings, then say, okay, what would need to be true about reality 
in order for persons like us to exist. And I would argue you can actually get to theism just kind of starting with that basis. But at the very least, you know, if you exist as a person, materialism has to be false. And so I really think that's on a robust Christian apologetic, but it is, I think, I think you can make the case that materialism is false if you can just get someone to grant that they're an actual person with freedom. And so that's ultimately what I end up doing in the conclusion. Yeah, and I think that's a really important and really helpful kind of insight on the dynamics and the case and even the the tactics in which you approached kind of making the case for that. Well, my guest today is Jay Richards. The book we're discussing today is The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in an Age of Smart Machines. And so, Jay, one of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit too is is one other little kind of definitional before we kind of get into kind of applying some of this, but how does the transhumanism debate or a conversation kind of fold into this, maybe define it quickly, and then kind of how does that relate? Because there's definitely an agenda there that's also pushing things forward in a certain way. Definitely. And I've been debating the transhumanist debate involved in it now for over a decade. But transhumanism is this movement that essentially says human beings, are, we're just sort of a stage in cosmic evolution. There was this kind of animal stage, and we're sort of at the end of that. We're in this biological stage, but then there's going to be this next stage of cosmic evolution that's the technological. And we're for transhumanists, we're right at the edge of that transition from the biological to the technological. And the basic idea is that our, we're software housed in hardware. Our bodies are sort of hardware, and they aren't very durable. We die after a few decades. We are easily injured. We're forgetful. And so the vision of transhumanists is that we're going to eventually develop technologies that we're able actually merge with, in a sense, to just describe it simplistically, that we'll eventually upload ourselves to something like a future internet so that our consciousness will then exist in some more durable and powerful technological future. So we can basically leave this mortal coil behind. We'll, we'll leave our bodies, our consciousnesses will exist in this kind of eternal forever. It's in many ways I think of it as the sort of materialist theology. I mean, if you're a materialist, you just assume, well, we're going to die and rot in the ground, but that's not satisfying to the human soul. And so transhumanists, in some ways, it's sort of, it's like eschatology for people that have lost all hope in a Christian eschatology. So we come up with a future in which, no, we don't spend eternity in the beatific vision in heaven with God or in the kingdom of God, but we will sort of join each other in this technological future where we're merged into some some great cosmic machine. That's the idea of transhumanism. And obviously, it ultimately really degrades human beings because it ultimately, again, assumes that we are machines. And so it makes sense that, well, if we're just machines, we're not very good machines. So let's work toward a future in which we can make our bodies at least better machines so that we can live forever. And so transhumanism and strong artificial intelligence, they tend to travel together so that people that are transhumanists also believe in strong artificial intelligence. So these tend to be all the same people. No, that's really, really helpful insight and framing. And so what I want to do now is kind of shift gears to kind of a thought experiment, uh, which should be fun in light of this. And so here's here's my question. You know, we get to work with a lot of teenagers here and students heading into the university and everything else. So here's my question. So if you were a teenager today going off to college, knowing what you know now, <laughs> what would you study? What skills would you focus on given what you know is coming in the age of artificial intelligence, what are those things that are going to be important for you to focus on and that won't become obsolete? So if you understand that kind of what, how would you kind of view the college years differently knowing what you know now? 
Well, I would honestly, and as you know, I talk about this in the book because my daughter is just now a sophomore in college. And so my argument is that you want to do those things that make you maximally adaptable to this coming age of smart machines. So in other words, don't think of four years of college as if, okay, I'm just going to, this is going to teach me something, everything I need to know, and then I'll be ready for a career for 40 years. As I mentioned earlier, the age is going to be highly disruptive. And so if you focus too narrowly on a technical discipline, actuarial science or something. I'm just picking that out of the blue. It may be that a machine is going to do that and it do it in five or 10 years. So you'll have a skill that becomes obsolete. So you don't want to do that. On the other hand, you do need to have some technical skills. I mean, you and I are talking right now over the internet. We're using a, a podcast uh, software that requires all this technology. It's not that complicated, but we need to know how to do this. And so my argument is that students need to essentially do both things. They need to get the broad liberal arts kind of education that helps them understand worldviews, make sure that they're literate, numerate, and can write a coherent English sentence. That is still an incredibly valuable, but unfortunately rare skill. Yeah, that's a big win. It's a big win. I mean, we, we at the Bush Business School, we always ask CEOs, well, what's the most important thing that, you know, we can teach students? And they say the ability to write a coherent paragraph, you know, and I and so I always tell kids that. On the other hand, you do need some technical skills. So my sort of best case scenario is that students would both give themselves a broad liberal arts grounding where they study logic, study how to write really well, but also add some, maybe they take a, a seminar on, on coding or they do do it intern on social media or something like that. And I'm just talking about the kind of college track students. The, the other interesting fact is that a lot of the skilled trades, they're actually a shortage of between four and five million skilled trades right now. And the reason is because First of all, we quit emphasizing that. Nobody takes shop class anymore in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, we treat that as if it's not a dignified work. But also, it's actually really hard to automate that stuff. I mean, you're not going to have robots that are going to do landscaping or carpentry or even welding anytime soon. That, that's the kind of stuff that involves complex bodily movement, which you have to learn to do things with your body. We can't make robots that do that. And so I think there's actually a natural path. If you're going the college route, get yourself broad education, plus add a couple of technical skills, that allows you to adapt forever because you're going to be involved in continuous education after you get out of college. If you don't want to go that route, develop a skilled trade that involves complex bodily movement. Don't say, well, I'll just get a job in a factory doing something repetitive. Those are the kinds of jobs that are actually in the process of getting replaced. Now, that's that's really, really helpful insight. And you know, so and, and maybe kind of bleeds over into one of the things you talk about in your book. Talk about kind of this concept of being anti-fragile or anti-fragile in an age of exponential change and kind of yeah. unpack that a little bit. Anti-fragility is it's from this great book by Nicholas Nassim Taleb called Anti-Fragile. But you think of it this way. If you think about a system or an object, to be fragile means you're easily broken. And so we might think, well, the opposite of fragile would be strong and robust. But in a sense... Something can be strong and robust, but it can still, if you break it, it doesn't improve. Anti-fragility is actually, it's the state in which you actually improve with failure or with perturbation. And a really good example of this is just lifting weights. You know, if you lift weights and you're trying to build muscle and strength, you don't just work out continually. If you do that, you'll tear down your muscles and ruin your joints. On the other hand, you have to work really hard. And so you go into the gym, you work out really hard for an hour 
And then you eat and you rest and you allow time for your muscles to develop and they become a little stronger. That's anti-fragility. And we see it everywhere in the biological world is that, you know, if you run barefooted, at first it hurts, but you build up calluses. So you actually end up stronger than you were before. That's the idea of anti-fragility. We think of it in biology, but it's also a virtue. And so my argument is that in an age that's highly disruptive and also changing really, really quickly, we need both the virtue of courage, which is just acting with a willingness to fail, but we also need to develop the virtue of learning from failure so that everything we try, maybe you spend a semester doing something and it's a dead end. Nevertheless, you use that experience and it, you build on it so that you do something you couldn't have done otherwise. And I think that's for a lot of people, especially a lot of young kids, you know, 18 years old, taking Impact 360 year, they may try several different things. And that's okay, because um, what often happens is we end up stacking different kinds of skills and experiences into some kind of unique vocation. And so I, that's why I think um, don't go to college and allow yourself to become this fragile hothouse flower. If you have people that are rude to you, if you try things and you, you fail at them or you don't do well, Find ways to help that improve you. And then I think you're going to be much better set up for the future. Yeah, I think that's great advice because I think, you know, we've done a lot of work with Gen Z and kind of studying them with the research we did with the Barna Group, but also just kind of our own experience. And, and just so many students are afraid to fail because yeah. it's so public and it's all over social media and everything <laughs> else. And so there's this fear of that. And so we kind of have to, and as parents, I think with the right motivation, but the wrong outcome, we kind of bubble wrap. Mm. kids and students. And so they never fail at anything until they need to start failing at something and they don't know how to fail at it. Well, no. <laughs> you know, yeah. And then they're just completely devastated when they have their first experience of failure. I mean, as parents, obviously you don't let your little kids run out in the, in the street, but you, you also don't want to quarantine them. There's this sweet spot where you're inoculating them. In fact, inoculation is a type of anti-fragility where you're exposed you know, in the biological sense to some kind of virus or thing that it's enough to create an immune response, but not enough to make you sick. The same way we got to do that with ideas. We need to find a way to be able to expose kids to ideas, including bad ideas, but in a way that they learn how to adapt to them and to deal with them. That's part of what apolog good apologetics does. Is it's, okay, we're going to expose you to these ideas that are out there because you never can avoid them. And here's how to think about them and how to grapple with them. Absolutely. You know, one of the things I think is interesting, and I think you, you point this out, you know, what, what has happened, I guess, to the habit of learning in an age of information? How has that affected us as a culture, but also especially, I think, students today? I mean, what's amazing is that we have never lived at a greater time in history to be able to actually access information. I mean, you can get a graduate degree equivalent in engineering or physics or chemistry free online as long as you have access to the internet and you can go to your public library if you don't if you don't have your own and so that's the, the, the sort of good news i mean every book that's ever been written certainly every classic book that's still in print is basically free and available online this is an amazing opportunity but at the same time we are much less inclined to be self-starters so i noticed that the kids that are say using khan academy or using online testing services they tend to be the overperformers already so that, you know, it's for, to them who has much, even more will be given. Whereas the kids that don't have good study habits, maybe their parents don't value education. They could be learning stuff on Khan Academy, but they're not the ones using it. And so there ends up being this gap so that these amazing opportunities are being accessed by the kids that 
probably would do fine without them. And the kids that can really benefit from them too often are not using them. And I, that's a tough question. I have a hard time knowing, okay, how do we solve that? But it, part of the problem with education is we've got to get the kids that need this to be able to access all these amazing resources. Yeah. And just learning, because I think one of the biggest gifts we can give this generation, you know, who in many ways, they don't need adults to mm-hmm. get access to information. They've got Siri and Google and everything else is how does this fit together? Does it fit together? How do we integrate these kind of things? And that's where I think, you know, as the Christian worldview just has this amazing opportunity to shine to say, hey, all these little fragments and bits of data, they actually fit if you look at it this way, because Christianity is actually true. So I think it's a real gift we can give the next generation. It is. And I think that these, as just raw data and information proliferate, discernment and focused attention and sort of curating important information become more and more valuable. I mean, this is why we don't just search the internet on our own. We use a search engine or we go to reliable sites. And in the same way, when you're dealing with the world of ideas, people who can curate and provide discernment and wisdom, I think that skill, that set of skills is going to become even more valuable. No, it's really, really, really important. And so one of the things that we found, we asked students in in our Gen Z study, kind of what's the goal of life? And 51% said happiness, more so than Mm. millennials and everybody else. And Mm -hmm. so in in your book, you have a chapter on this. But what, I guess, how would you put it? What is happiness and how should we pursue it? Because I think there's so much confusion on this and conflicting opinions, and and yet a lot of people are aiming at it, but they're becoming yeah. miserable. So talk to us about that. That's right. In fact, there was a recent book that I talk about in my book about a, a British woman who moved to the United States, moved to California, actually, specifically, and thought so many Americans spend all of their time pursuing happiness and thinking about how to make themselves happy, and they make themselves miserable doing it. And so I guess the first thing is that if you're literally thinking, okay, what do I need to do to make myself happy? That's a really bad way to pursue happiness. If happiness is usually, as we think of it, it's actually kind of, is usually sort of an output of pursuing something else. But I think right at the beginning, when I saw those, the poll question, I want to know, okay, how are you defining happiness? Because the psychologists define happiness, it's just essentially an assessment that you're more happy than not. So the majority of the time, if you think of your situation and say, yeah, I feel happy, then you're happy. That is a type of happiness, but it's not the type of happiness that Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas or any of the great Christian theologians talked about. Or the Westminster Catechism, right? What is Mm -hmm. the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever, to enjoy this, this kind of state of happiness and bliss in which we're in the presence of God. So yes, absolutely, happiness is in a sense the proper end of man, but don't think happiness in that sense means short-term kind of pleasure. That is absolutely not what it means. In fact, it doesn't even mean necessarily always a psychological state. It's actually the fulfillment of what we are as persons. What is our nature? What does God want for us? True happiness consists not just in, okay, well, I got enough to eat and I enjoy my family and I have good friends. It's actually fulfilling what we're supposed to do. And that can't be done without virtue. People often think, well, happiness just means, you know, if I'm, if I enjoy smoking pot or just playing World of Warcraft 15 hours a day, then that's what makes me happy. No, that might make you happy short term, but it also contradicts your nature. It's using vice rather than virtue. And so you're never really truly going to be happy. That's why I say, you know, a mom would never tell her son, again, who wanted to play World of Warcraft all day, well, you know, whatever makes you happy. She would know No, that's not the right kind of happiness. You want a happiness that coheres with virtue and with a fully lived life as a creature made in the image of God 
with a purpose. And so when you're finding God's purpose in your life, you're doing what you're designed to do, and you're pursuing that, you're pursuing this meaningful, purposeful sort of definition for your life, you'll develop the right kind of happiness. And it will often involve just the kind of ordinary kind of happiness, but it's much, much greater than that. And it can become so great in the, you know, the lives of the saints that they can sometimes be physically suffering in the body and still be amazingly happy, like Paul singing in prison. That's the kind of supernatural happiness that we hope for everyone. But when people say, yeah, happiness is the end of life, I always want to say, okay, now define happiness for me, because you might be right or you might be wrong, depending on what you mean by that word. Yeah, happiness as human flourishing is much, much mm. different than the satisfaction of all my desires in the moment. Exactly. And so I loved I loved the conversation about this. What Maybe let's practically, so mom and her dad are thinking about this, students thinking about this. What is a what is a first step or a next step to begin to form virtue in their lives? Like what what does that practically look like? So maybe unpack yes. it a little bit. I mean, what it practically looks like, and I'm gonna I'm gonna draw on this new book by Jordan Peterson that everybody's talking about, in which he says, you want to compare yourself not to your neighbors or to people across the street or whatever. Compare yourself today with yourself yesterday. And so a virtue is ultimately the result of a habit in which you willfully act, okay, I want to learn to play the piano. So I am going to, even though I want to go outside, I'm going to sit at the piano and play my chords. I'm going to do this a little bit every day and I'm going to really focus. It slowly becomes a habit so that you sort of do it automatically. And if you keep doing it, it actually becomes a virtue in the sense that by your conscious sort of habitual action, you work your way back into your being and become in a sense more than you were before. That's a virtue. And so the only way to ever acquire virtue is one step at a time. And so if you're wanting to, you know, just say you want to be kinder to other people or you want to study more diligently than you do, pick something that moves you in that direction and then compare yourself tomorrow with say, okay, how was I doing on this yesterday and how am I doing today? If you're doing a little better than you were yesterday, then you're moving in the right direction. And so I always say, don't imagine, you know, if you want to be a great marathoner in the Olympics, you know, maybe that's your ultimate goal. But if you ever want to get there, you need to focus on the kind of one step at a time. And when people do that, it's like students that start out a class in a semester in college and they look at the syllabus and they panic because they imagine, I can't do all that work. They can't do all that work right then, but they don't have to. They've got three or four months to finish it. And so remember, that's the ultimate destination. It's the same thing with writing a book. Don't say, i got to write 65,000 words on this book. No, you just need to write 300 words today. And so I always say, I just think Peterson's advice is really good for developing a habit and a virtue. Compare yourself today with how you were yesterday. And just that tells you whether you're moving in the right or the wrong direction. That's that's so helpful. And there's so much good stuff in, in this book. And if you're listening to this right now, I mean, maybe that's maybe that's this week. That's what is a next step, you know, of virtue that isn't just instant gratification, whether you're a mom or a dad or a student, a teenager, wherever you're at. Like, what's a next step you can be in practicing doing to form virtue, to build kind of that anti-fragility into your life and courage and, you know, to overcome failure, some of those things. And it's just so, so much good stuff to think about. And here at Impact 360, we want to be an ally to you in this, whether that's if you have a high school student, whether that's our summer experiences, either Propel or Immersion, or our nine-month uh, fellows experience for high school graduates, age 18 to 20, whatever that looks like, or these podcasts or courses we have, whatever that looks like, we want to be a resource and ally cheering you on, engaging, because we want we want to see the next generation follow Jesus for a lifetime. So that's what we're passionate about. And uh, so, Jay, I love the book, Human Advantage. It's, we'll have links 
to the book in the, in the show notes. But Jay, thank you so much for writing this book, your work, and also being with us today on the podcast. My pleasure, Jonathan. Great to be with you. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live. Live.